Thank you, Blake and Pracy. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21 is where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Well, a lot of our lives are spent following patterns that were set for us by other people. Most of them are patterns that were set for us by our parents. We may not even realize that we're following after the things that our parents used to do or picking up a lot of their habits until we do something that our parents used to do in the way they used to do it. And we think to ourselves, that's just like my dad used to say, or that's just like my mom used to say. There's patterns that are set for us by other people that we follow just intuitively. The hard part is knowing which patterns are good to follow and which patterns are bad to follow. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to set before us a pattern that we are to follow. He is responding and reacting to a lot of the things that the Pharisees have said to him in the previous passage, and we're going to see that this morning. And then he's going to set a different course of action. But the pattern that he sets for us is actually a a model for us as a church family, as a church community, not just individual Christians, that's certainly true too, but also as a group, a church body. He sets before us a pattern that we would do well to emulate. Let's look at our text this morning in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for this text and its ministry in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. Pray that we would understand it rightly. Pray for our attentions, that they would be held to this text to what you have to say to us in it, that we would not just seek out an academic exercise just to understand the nuts and the bolts of the text, but that we would also apply it to our lives and really think about how this applies to our hearts, that we may be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, very early on, Matthew has introduced to us this character, Jesus, and he's told us very clearly, unequivocally, This Jesus that we're looking at is the son of David and the son of Abraham. But he's not just that. He is rightful heir to David's throne. In addition to that, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel come to live with us. That he is a new and better Moses. He's a new and better Abraham. He's a new and better Israel setting a pattern by which we should follow. But he's coming to die a death for us. Then we see in chapters 4 to chapter 7 of Matthew, where Jesus is introducing us to this kingdom of heaven that he's actually bringing. As the Messiah, as the one rightful, uh, the heir to the throne, he is bringing this kingdom to us and he's introducing us to what it's like. 
telling us what, is, what citizens that live in this kingdom, what they look like, what they act like, what they think like, what priorities they have, all of those kinds of things. But then in the next set of chapters, in chapters 8 to 10, he demonstrates that this kingdom that he's talking about is not just merely ethereal. It's not just merely a thought exercise. This kingdom that he's talking about actually has an impact on people's lives. And he shows that because he goes to people that are hurting, that are dying, that need healing, that, are, that, are, that need resurrection from the dead. And he does exactly that. He heals them. He raises them from the dead. He gives them sight. In one case, he's in a boat and he calms the waves, the sea. He calms the wind to which everybody is left going. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So he's demonstrating this, that this kingdom actually has a real impact on people's lives and that he has power and authority to wield it. But now we're in a section of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 11 through 13, where people are responding to this in various ways. They're not just responding to the kingdom of heaven as it's been presented. They're also responding to Jesus himself. And they're saying whether or not they believe that this guy is the actual Messiah. In the passage that we were in previously, last week, we see that the Pharisees are responding to Jesus who has just healed a man with a withered hand. And how are they responding to Jesus? Well, they have determined that they're going to kill him. That's how they respond to it. Matthew summarizes the essence of Jesus' ministry in the passage that we're in this morning. And what makes him drastically different from the Pharisees is what Matthew is going to underscore. He's going to show us today what makes Jesus drastically different than the Pharisees and their ministry. First thing that we're going to see in our text this morning is that Jesus' ministry is one of service to his people. Jesus' ministry is one of service to his people. Look at verse 15 here. He says, Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus is aware that the Pharisees have gathered together and that they're plotting and scheming to kill him. So their plot is to kill him, and he's more aware than anyone, mind you, that they're going to be successful. That in the end, their plot is going to come to fruition. That one day they're going to get their wish and that he's going to be handed over and that he's going to be crucified and beaten and stricken and mocked and scorned for our sakes so that, as Isaiah tells us, by his stripes we may be healed. But Matthew has already told us back at the very beginning of the gospel in 121 that this is the reason Jesus had come, to save his people from their sins. So we know that that's the course that Jesus is on. He is aware that the, uh, the, the Pharisees are going to accomplish their goal in bringing him to death. But are you paying attention to what Matthew is actually doing here? Matthew, he's, he's the narrator of this story, and he's broken away from the text to just give us an explanation of Jesus' travels, of what he's doing in this section and what it's accomplishing. But this is a very stark contrast. Matthew is showing us a marked difference between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Pharisees. See, in the previous passages, the, the Pharisees have set themselves up 
as the keepers of the law. They're God's custodians, as it were. They're the ones that are coming in, self-appointed, mind you, to ensure that everyone is making the same efforts in regards to the Sabbath as they're making. They're there as the appointed guardians to slap everybody on the wrist and make sure they understand, do you know that that's not in keeping with the Sabbath? Do you know that that's not what God has told us? So they approach Jesus and his disciples out of good faith to ensure, mind you, that the disciples and Jesus are properly educated on how to keep the Sabbath day holy, how to obey the fourth commandment. See, they want to catch Jesus in a trap. That's what they do in the next part of the passage. Not only do they make sure he knows what the Sabbath day is, but then they set up a trap for him. And they take this man who has a withered hand and they put him before Jesus and they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're setting a trap for him. They're hoping that by some means they can invalidate his ministry. They can set him up as a false teacher. They can show before everybody there watching, you see? Look how liberal he is with the word of God. Look how liberal he is with God's law. He can't possibly be the Messiah. There's absolutely no way. But Jesus couldn't be any more different than the Pharisees. Much to their chagrin, he takes the man with the withered hand and he just heals him right there in front of everybody. I'm sure that surprised them. He's made an appeal. You'll remember this in the end of chapter 11. And if you just look back there to the end of chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus makes an appeal that shows why he is drastically different than the Pharisees. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Matthew is showing us there at the end of chapter 11, here's Jesus' statement about his ministry. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me if you're heavy laden and weary and I will give you rest. And then there's the supposed law keepers of the day. Those that taught the law and yet looked nothing like God the Father. That's what we see in verses 1 to 14. Here's the way that they run the world. Here's the way that they run society. But those that had taught the law, the Pharisees, didn't understand the heart of the God behind the law. So they supposedly represented God through the keeping of his law, yet they looked nothing like his character. How is it possible that those would claim that claim to be representatives of God would look nothing like his character. See, the reality is that the Pharisees are the offspring of, on the one hand, an adulterous Jewish generation, constantly wandering away from her husband, struggling with faithfulness to God. And Satan, on the other hand. And what was born out of this unholy union, the product 
of this adulterous generation and Satan himself is a group of Pharisees that though they seem like they're born into the family of Abraham, they're telling all the Jews that they are one of you, they're born into the family of Abraham, they don't look or act anything like God the Father. So Jesus is going to take them to task in Matthew chapter 23. Now this is going ahead, but I want us to think ahead for just a second. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to give a list of the the kind of ministry that the Pharisees have put on people. And so I want you to hear this list. You can even mark down Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to read it exactly, but I'm going to go through Matthew chapter 23 and show you what Jesus is saying about the ministry of the Pharisees. So he says in 23.3, the Pharisees preach but do not practice. 23.4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they are not willing to move them with their finger. In verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love it when other people make a big deal about them. They give them the best seats and they call them teacher. That's 23.6-7. to They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, verse 13. They are blind guides who teach tradition over God's commands, that's 16 to 22. They tithe on exactly 10%, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, verse 23. They are clean on the outside and vile on the inside, verses 25 to 28. They are serpents and sons of serpents who murdered the prophets and can't recognize true teachers from false ones, verses 29 to 36. That's the ministry of the Pharisees, that they're putting on the people that are supposedly following them, the people that they're supposedly leading. Jesus, on the other hand, is completely different, and he wants nothing to do with it. In fact, he withdraws from it. We look in our passage this morning, that's exactly what he's doing. He's moving away from strife. He's moving away from what the Pharisees are wanting to bait him into. Why? Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus is demonstrating perfectly for us the model that he already laid out in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You remember that? Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through about 12 or so. He goes through a list there that he says characterizes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so here we're looking at Jesus, the truest citizen of the kingdom of heaven that there ever has been. Model for us perfectly the Beatitudes. They're listed in Matthew chapter 5. So you can mark those down too. He's poor in spirit. He understands perfectly what it means to depend on God the Father at all times. And keeping about his mission that the Father has put him here on. He never deviates from it. He mourns over over the sin of the world around him and has come to rescue people from it. That's his stated purpose at the beginning of Matthew. He is meek. 
He doesn't seek to quarrel with the Pharisees. That's right there in this passage. He doesn't want to quarrel with them before going to the cross. And in fact, uh, just like Isaiah tells us, when he goes to the cross, when he stands on trial like a sheep who before its shearers is silent, so he will open not his mouth to fight and contend with their position, even though it means death for him. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's distancing himself from all of their sordid conversations and all the things they want to bait him into. He distances himself from those kinds of things because he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He's merciful. He heals on the Sabbath. That's exactly what he's doing right here. And he tells the Pharisees that's why he's doing it is because he's merciful. And he heals in our passage this morning, he heals all those who follow him. He's merciful. He is pure in heart. He's keeping himself free from sin and he's wanting nothing to tempt him. And so he separates himself from the scheming Pharisees. He's the ultimate peacemaker. Not only has he made peace, but does he make peace as he goes, but he also is the ultimate peacemaker because he has made peace between his and God. The ultimate peace that can be made is between us and God, and he has done it. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that he has secured such peace for his elect that no one can bring a charge. It says he, Paul says, he is at this very moment interceding for us that nothing may ever separate us from his love, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He is the ultimate peacemaker. He is persecuted for righteousness sake. No one, in fact, is more persecuted for righteousness sake than he is, not only for doing righteous, but he was also truly righteous. He's the only person that's ever been killed who was truly righteous. Not one sin did he ever commit. He's modeling for us exactly what we see in the Beatitudes. And as he withdraws away from the Pharisees, we see a crowd of people continuing to come up to him, asking for healing. And what does it say he does? He heals them all. He heals them all. Now, it's quite obvious that the interaction between he and the Pharisees did not end well. It ended with their plot to kill him. Now, it would have been easy, I think, for Jesus to storm off in a huff and to be really mad as he left and to just want everybody to get away from him, maybe even to vent to all those around him about the way the bullheaded Pharisees were acting. And it would have been easy for him to tell all the people that are coming around him, asking for healing, could you just take a hike for a minute? Just give me some peace. That's what we do, isn't it? When you're trying to think about something, when you're trying to do something, and your kids are asking you for fruit snacks, (laughs) don't you? You can't even think of their name. You're like, just stop it. Let me think for just a second. He doesn't do that because that's inconsistent with his character. It's more consistent with our character or my character. Instead, Matthew tells us he healed them all. Literally everyone. You know what's further irony here? 
We're not told that this was a different day than the Sabbath day. So not only does he reject the Pharisee's premise and he heals the man on the Sabbath day, he walks away and he's like, who else wants healing? I'll give it to you. I'm just passing it out. So in all likelihood, Jesus is just re-emphasizing his authority over the Sabbath day. Matthew is telling us again, he has authority over the Sabbath day and that his ministry is indeed serving people. And it's completely different than that of the Pharisees. It couldn't be any more different. While all of these people are suffering, think about this for just a second. All of these people need healing. The man with the withered hand and all the other people that we're not told about that do come to Jesus for healing. All of them need healing. And the Pharisees, who are supposed to be leading them and shepherding them, are plotting how to kill the healer. Think about that for just a second. A man with a withered hand has just come up to the waters of life and has had his hand restored. And the Pharisees gather together thinking about how they're going to dam up the river so no one else can have access. Can you imagine that? See, their minds aren't set on serving people as they're supposed to be. Their minds are on maintaining a position of power and authority. However, Jesus, no matter how, the circumstance, no matter how tired, no matter how frustrated, no matter what else might have been going on at the time, he is dedicated to gospel ministry. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of fatigue, regardless of frustration, he is dedicated to gospel ministry. Now, if this is our Lord and Savior. Who are we as his disciples? If this is the pattern of ministry that he is setting, who are we as his disciples? Parents, is your ministry to your children more like Jesus or more like the Pharisee? Do you care more about outward performance or the inward position of the heart? Are you after outward conformity to societal standards? Do you want them to achieve a certain thing? Do you want them to be a certain kind of character, particularly in public? Boy, don't you act a fool. Merely so that people would look at them and see them as a model child. So that they don't bring shame upon you or your household. It doesn't just apply to parents. It's friendships. Do I want my friends to treat me perfectly? Never abuse the friendship. Never at all. Do I keep them at arm's length if they ever do anything that I don't approve of? It could be anything. Fill in the blank. But if we teach our children, parents, that in order to please us, they have to bring to us their righteousness, then we're parenting like Pharisees. The ministry of the gospel-minded parent is after repentance. It's after hearts 
that are broken by sin. We desire hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness. So your job, parent, is to give them Jesus as Savior. Set before them repentance as a gracious gift of God. Model that for them with your own life. Because look, if we set ourselves as different than them, if we say to them, hey, you need to repent of these sins, but they never see mom and dad ever come to them and say, I blew it. All they end up doing is putting mom and dad on a pedestal and thinking, that's what I've got to achieve. That kind of outward conformity, that's what I've got to achieve. But that's not what we're after. If you set those things before them and you demonstrate that with your own life and if they believe what you're telling them and what you're showing them, then the hungering and thirsting for righteousness will come in due time. They will desire to follow after the Lord in due time. But see, that's the difference between gospel ministry and the ministry of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees want outward conformity without an inward change of heart. They don't care about the inward change of heart. They simply want the outward conformity. But Jesus is seeking after the inward change of heart, knowing that it produces eventually the works of righteousness. So therefore, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of how tired he is, regardless of how frustrated he may be, he's willing to serve. He's willing to do for others. He's willing to expend all his energy. He's willing to ultimately give his life as a ransom for many. But then Jesus orders them not to make him known. That's weird. Why does he do that? Why does he look to them from time to time and tell them, don't tell anybody about this? I mean, isn't this good news? This is the good news of the kingdom. The Messiah has come. Shouldn't we all be rejoicing about this? Why does he then tell them, don't go tell anybody that I'm doing this? This is all a secret. He does this throughout the Gospels, mostly in the Gospel of Mark. But I think there's at least three reasons why he does it. And Matthew clues us in at least on one of them. First is the fact that, the, that people want to kill him. So that's a big thing, right? <laughs> people, want, people want to kill him. And so he's ordering to keep it uh, quiet for now because his time has not yet come. So having thousands of people running around talking about how he's the Messiah and how he healed all their illnesses and how he's doing this or that would bring about this conflict before its appointed time. And so he's telling them to be quiet. You notice that as people go out, most of the time they don't listen to him and they just do it anyway. But he tells them uh, to be quiet. He's not wanting to quarrel with the Pharisees before the time has come and make the problem worse. But second, and I think, by the way, that's what Matthew clues us in on in verse 17 and following. But second, the people that he's healing aren't entirely sure who Jesus is. You remember? They, they know that, or they, that some of them may think that Jesus is the Messiah. They may be following him because they're pretty sure that Jesus is the Messiah. But who do they think the Messiah is going to be? 
They think the Messiah is going to be a political ruler. He's going to come in and he's going to kick out the Romans just like David does the Philistines and he's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule a political kingdom there in Israel. He's going to unite all the people together and he's going to be the king of the Jews. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. You remember there's that moment when Peter takes Jesus aside after he's talking about how he's going to die and Jesus pulls him aside and he says, hey, Cut it out with all the death stuff. What are you talking about? And then there's that really awkward moment where Jesus calls him Satan. Peter's got his mind on the same thing. He's thinking about that same thing. But the people are told to be quiet because they speak out of ignorance. They don't know exactly what the Messiah's ministry is about. But last, and I think most important of all, Jesus is waiting on the Father to speak. He's waiting on the Father to speak first. There are at least two occasions that I'm aware of in the gospel where someone calls to Jesus, the Son of God, and they're not told to be quiet. And both of those are God the Father. One happens at Jesus' baptism and the other at his transfiguration, where God says in both cases, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in one case, he says, listen to him. But then Paul tells us in Romans 1-4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So in other words, it seems as though the resurrection marks this point in history where God opens it up to the world to declare to the world publicly for the first time, really broadly speaking, that this is indeed my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He has resurrected from the dead. I have risen, raised him from the dead. Now, not that he wasn't the son of God before that point. Of course, that's not what we mean. But he's declared publicly at that point by the resurrection of the dead. So he tells people to be silent about what he's doing, to go about so that he can go about his his ministry for those reasons. But in spite of the secrecy, and maybe even the secrecy leads us to even confirm it even more, that Jesus' ministry is one of service to his people. He's not coming in initially to lead from the top. Initially, it's from the bottom to serve those people. Second thing we see in our passage is that Jesus' ministry is to sufferers. Jesus' ministry is to sufferers. Matthew tells us here that Jesus escaping from the Pharisees is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so he gives this long quote from Isaiah 42, 1-4, and it's part of the passage that that Jeremy read at the beginning of our worship service. This passage is from Isaiah, and it's in the second half of the book of Isaiah, And virtually the entire second half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, is all about the fact that the Messiah that's coming, his ministry will not fit into the categories that a Jew is thinking a Messiah will do. That in fact, this servant that's coming, that's why he says, my servant who is coming, this servant is going to suffer. He's going to suffer. We learn about the Messiah there in in Isaiah that his ministry isn't going to be one that looks like this great success on the outside. 
He's not going to be one that has this triumphant uh, ministry that's always a success, that's always beautiful. You may recall in Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages and one of the most beautiful passages of all the Old Testament, detailing exactly what the Messiah is going to look like. Go back and read it uh, in your off time and, and you'll have chills. But we learn there about the suffering servant. And what does it say? That it was the will of God to crush him, that he will be smitten by God and afflicted. The suffering servant is going to bear our griefs and our sorrows. And then we get that famous passage in 53, 5 to 6, where it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the point is that we learn in the latter half of the book of Isaiah that the ministry of the Messiah is going to be one of suffering, not of earthly success. But this was God's intention. It was the will of God to crush him. That he might lay on him all of our sins. That's the point. He, he was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Messiah, the, that the Messiah might suffer an eternity of hell in just a few hours for us. This is the heart of the gospel message. And if you are here this morning and you don't yet follow Christ, let me tell you, he is an advocate between, he's not an advocate, he's the advocate between God and man. He is the only one to provide intercession for you. He is the only one that stands in between you and the judgment of God. He offers to you a gift of grace by faith, believing in him, repenting of your sins, Laying on him all of your guilt. He bore it on the cross of Calvary. There needn't be any reason why you stand on judgment day before a holy God to bear all of his wrath when Jesus bore it for you. Confess your sins and profess faith in him now. Don't wait any longer. So Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 here, and he tells us what Jesus is doing. He's escaping from the Pharisees, and yet he's continuing to minister to all the people that follow him, in, and it's precisely in line with the picture of the suffering servant there at the end of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. But he is chosen of God, and it says in verse 18, if you'll look there, he says, he proclaims justice to the Gentiles, or it may be translated the nations. He proclaims justice to the nations. Folks, there is no one in the world that feels the injustice of the world, that feels the burden of the sin that we're in in this world than those that are afflicted with incurable disease or that are on their deathbed. But Jesus has told us as far back as Matthew chapter 4, that he's bringing the kingdom of God. And he demonstrates it then by bringing it into people's lives. What do you think those people see when they, they feel the presence of sin in their illness and their infirmity and their death? What do you think they feel when Jesus puts his hand on their chest and raises them from the dead or cures their illness? 
or gets rid of their blindness. We have one even suffering now in our congregation on the verge of death. What do you think our congregation would see if God chose the snap of his finger to get rid of pancreatic cancer in Kathy? What do you think our congregation would do if that were to happen? How much do you think we would feel how deeply sin has entrenched itself in our world? Knowing what the kingdom of heaven is like. Knowing what it has brought. So he's demonstrating that God's kingdom has in fact come. But then in verse 19... He's avoiding conflict with the Pharisees and he's also keeping in in character with the suffering servant. In verse 19, he says he doesn't quarrel or cry aloud. He doesn't fight. He doesn't yell. He's not a brawler. He's quiet and unassuming in ministry that, that isn't characterized by fighting. So if you're a Jewish zealot and you're looking for a Messiah to come in and drive out the Romans, he's not the Messiah you're hoping for. He's quite different than the Messiah you thought him to be. He's not a brawler. You want a brawler. And Isaiah and Matthew are telling us that that's not what the Messiah is, not at least at first. But then we get to the crescendo of the entire quote in verse 20. Look at what he says. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let me just clarify something real quick. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick is not Jesus in this passage. It's not Jesus. You might be tempted to read it that way, but Jesus, uh, the bruised reed... Uh, won't break is what he's saying. That, G, that it, you read it instead the way he's intending it. He says, he will not break a bruised reed. That's the point. Jesus will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering wick. The reed was used to bind up things to keep them straight. It was also used as a measuring stick. So if a, a reed was bent or cracked or whatever, uh, it, weak in any way, it wouldn't work, and so it would be thrown out. A wick, if it began to smoke, wasn't good anymore. You had to just throw it out and and replace it. Isaiah, what he's meaning to tell us, what Matthew is meaning to tell us, is that the Messiah will be so gentle that all the reeds that come to him, bruised by the effects of a sinful life, he won't finish the job by snapping them over his knee and throwing them out. That he's not going to take the smoldering wick and, and squelch what's left of it and throw it in the fire and say, yeah, you should be ashamed of yourself, you smoldering wick. Look how dirty and worthless you are. Who would want such a nasty mess of garbage and just throw you away? That's not the character of the Messiah. The picture of the Messiah here is the picture that we see of Jesus is one who is so gentle and compassionate that the sin-sick have life breathed into them by his ministry and his work, and he will not quit this ministry until he has established justice on the earth. This is the reason that the nations find hope in his name. 
Because the nations here know what it is to live with a sin-sick heart. They know what it is to have freedom and rescue and salvation. There are two different things going on in our culture at the same time. The first is that sin is being championed as if it's a point of pride. The second is that pride is being championed as if it's not a sin. Both of them going on at the same time. All who actively participate in sinful activities have found a culture that is ready and willing to accept them and to exalt them into a place of pride. And the way these are lifted high, which should be really troubling to us, the way these are lifted high often borrows from biblical language where Jesus is talking about the disenfranchised or Luke in particular is talking about the disenfranchised, the poor, the despised of society. And these selected verses are pulled out of their context and they're given to us as a narrative to elevate all the sin that's going on to a point of pride. And we're told that's what Jesus wants us to do. If we want to be like Jesus and if we want to perfectly embody what he's telling us to do, then we should be doing those same things too. And we should not be calling people sinners. We should not be uh, calling sin out or calling people to repentance. But see, all that misses the very pivotal point of Jesus' ministry, and that is precisely that, that he called them to repentance. He called them to repentance. The kingdom of God has no place for a bruised reed that is unwilling to admit that he's bruised. Or a smoldering wick that is unwilling to admit that he is smoldering. But the second and seemingly opposite, yet also similar position, is that pride is being championed as if it's not a sin. See, today the word pride has a positive connotation. It has come to to mean the, the projection of confidence. And we think, as a church, maybe as Christians, that in order to make a difference in the world and a difference for Christ, we need a positive sense of self. We need an appearance that we have it all together. And so the worst thing that we can do is let people see our failings lest they think we're one of them. The worst thing that I can do is confess my sins to other people. The worst thing that I can do is back down from a fight. We don't honor humility. We don't revere humility. We don't follow humility. We follow pride. But what does the pattern of Jesus' ministry actually look like? How will his kingdom actually fill the earth? In humility. Quietly. Preaching repentance of sin. Carefully avoiding conflict. Preaching trust in Christ as the only means by which one may have eternal life. Telling broken reeds and smoldering wicks that you can find forgiveness before God through Jesus Christ. Making disciples that understand what a repentant life of following Christ actually looks like. 
How amazing would it be to have our churches and our pews filled with broken reeds and smoldering wicks who have found forgiveness in Christ and are quietly demonstrating and teaching others how to do the same. Instead, in most of our pews, in our churches in America, we have broken reeds and smoldering wicks who are either pretending that they aren't broken and smoldering or they're trying to limit the number of people who know that they are. It's been said before, and I think it's true. The church is not a museum of saints. It's a hospital for the sick and the dying. It's a hospital for the broken wicks and the smoldering the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks. It's a ministry to people that recognize they're broken. And so my prayer for Emmanuel Baptist Church, my prayer is that we would follow after the pattern that Jesus has set before us in his ministry, that we would truly be a community that bears other people's sin sickness. That we would desire to bear with them, to come alongside them, to pray for them, to call them back to repentance, not to ignore their sin, but to walk that fine line. There is a small area that we want to walk very carefully. The pendulum can swing one way or the other. You can be, you can try to be a ministry to broken reeds and smoldering wicks by not just ignoring their sin altogether. Never calling them out on sin, just live and let live. Champion where they're at. That's not where we want to be. We also don't want to be a place that says there is no uh, room for sin in this community. We are a puritanical community. You cannot be here if you have sickness and sin, or if you have a sin sick heart. We don't want to be there either. We want to walk that fine line right in the middle where we can call people to repentance. Yet we can also help them and love them and walk with them in their infirmity. The question is, how do we do that? Well, we want to be a community that models the ministry of Jesus in his service in the midst of suffering. That's where we fit in that kind of suffering service. In a moment, we're going to take and observe the Lord's Supper I'm going to pray. I'm going to have our deacons come forward and begin getting ready to distribute the elements. I want you to join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it have a ministry here, that we not see Jesus, the Messiah, and his ministry as one of weakness, but one of true strength, that we embody and follow after this exalted Savior who exalted himself by serving others around him. I pray that we would take up that same agenda. I pray for our parents as they seek to minister to their children's hearts, that you would give them the ability to do so. You would give them help. That you would allow them the boldness to speak to their children in a way that's open and honest, clues them into the fact that mom and dad too are broken. And smoldering. I pray that it would be mean mercy for us that as we uh, do our ministry, that we would extend mercy to those that are around us, because we have received mercy. I pray for this time as we take up the Lord's Supper that you would prepare our hearts to remember what you have done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen.